Hello and welcome to the Women in Tech and Radio podcast. My name is Camille and I'll be your host. I'm a guerrilla marketing manager at David Systems, which is an enterprise software company in audio. We're based in Munich, Germany. I'm very excited about this podcast, which will consist in a series of interviews with great women in tech. So sit back and enjoy. Good morning and welcome to this newest episode of Women in Tech and Radio. Thank you so much for joining today, Mariana. Oh, thank you for having me, Camille. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, of course. So my name is Mariana Lopez. I'm a senior lecturer in sound production and post-production at the Department of Theatre, Film, Television and Interactive Media at the University of York. And there I teach on sound production and post-production for film and television drama. And I also carry out research both on acoustics and heritage, but also on sound design and accessibility. How did you get into this? My undergraduate degree was something similar to musicology. So it wasn't pure musicology, but it was a degree in arts that had a specialization in music. So you would study things like different musical uh, periods in history. After I did that, I went to the University of York to do a master's in a post-production with sound design. So when I was an undergraduate student, I did more humanities-based studies on sound. But when I moved to the University of York, I started developing a greater interest in technology and actually more creative practice on sound design. And I decided to apply for a PhD. At the time, I had become quite interested in the idea of virtual acoustics, so the idea of using acoustic measurements on site, but also using computer models to study spaces that were important to history, but had changed its form due to passage of time or any other uh, structural changes. So I was really lucky to get funding to return to the University of York to do a PhD on a series of medieval drama plays that were staged in the city of York in the streets. So my PhD was about studying street acoustics of the streets that were linked to that medieval cycle. So what I did was a series of acoustic measurements in sight in this particular street that is quite relevant to the history of York. So generally just really early mornings in very, very cold weather. And I also used a lot of computer modules. And the idea was to understand how the acoustics of the street, but the acoustics of this kind of bespoke wagons that they used as stages at the time would have modified how the plays were performed and how those structures could have been chosen to make the most of challenging outdoor acoustics. I'm not really sure that made much sense at all, but mostly about acoustic measurements, computer models, and understanding how our ancestors used acoustics for drama performance. Okay, and what inspired you to go into this very specific field? Yeah, <laughs> it is very specific, yeah. When I was a student, a master's student, I just came across the research of a now professor in sound technology called Damien Murphy. And he was doing loads of work on virtual acoustics. And I found that really inspiring. And I, I kind of loved the idea of suddenly recreating something that no longer existed and being able to revisit the past 
through sound instead of just going back and focusing on the visuals. So I just found that that concept fascinating. And because I was based in York, using York drama, medieval drama as a case study was quite convenient because I was already there and it was easier to access the spaces. So um, so that was that was it. Do you have future projects related to this? I, I still do quite a lot of work on acoustical heritage and I am currently supervising the work from a wonderful researcher called Lydia Alvarez Morales and she is funded through a European Commission a grant through the Marie Sklodowska-Curie Fellowships. So that project is based on recreating, kind of studying the current acoustics of four English cathedrals, but also reconstructing them through the different historical periods through computer modeling. That's really Lydia's project. I'm there just to support her and advise and hopefully help her in whatever she needs. But nowadays I work mostly on using sound design for accessibility. So I work with visually impaired audiences of film and television and on developing alternatives to accessibility measures so that sound design can be used to provide an engaging, informative experience for those that cannot see the screen. So I'm very interested in how to work on creating alternative versions to what we call audio description. So audio description in film and TV is a third-person narration that is used in film and TV programs to provide access to visually impaired people. So generally you have kind of a voice recording of someone telling you what's happening on screen. And I was quite interested in trying to find more creative alternatives to accessibility. So I worked on a project called Enhancing Audio Description, which is about using sound design through additional recording of sound effects, use of binaural audio and first person narration to allow filmmakers to create accessible films that can be consumed and enjoyed by visually impaired audiences. What attracted you to audio in the first place? I've always loved music and I had not a super musical family. You know, it's not one of those families that everybody plays, you know, in an orchestra or something like that. But my parents did really like uh, listening to music. So there's always music playing at home. I took piano classes when I was a kid and a teenager. So going into the degree that looked into music as an art form was quite attractive to me. And when I moved to sound design for my master's, I just found this kind of new degree that had opened and I was quite interested in studying in the UK. And I felt it might be kind of a challenging but interesting thing to do. But it was quite a change for me, especially when I changed to studies on acoustics and virtual acoustics, which were uh, highly technical for a person that had done a humanities background degree. So that was quite a shift and quite a scary one. And I remember being kind of asked quite constantly whether I was sure I wanted to go down that route. But I wanted to, I guess I wanted to prove that I could do it, that someone from a humanities background could retrain and use those skills, plus gaining new skills to create a project, a research project on sound. So it was a bit of kind of a desire to do more practical work, plus wanting to challenge myself and do something different. And was it an easy decision to go into research afterwards with a PhD and then becoming a professor? I, I kind of was qu always quite research driven in the sense that I've always had quite a passion to kind of understand new things and push myself. 
I guess the, the, the decision of, of going and doing something that was highly technical was much more difficult because it was quite scary from going and doing something that was very much about analysing material and reading and writing to go to something where you had to take measurements, analyse loads of acoustical parameters, try to understand what they meant was a challenge. And a lot of it was about teaching myself by doing triple the work most of people would have done if they were in a, in a PhD that was on a topic they knew more about. When I started my PhD, I knew very little about the topic I was researching. And I received some mentorship, but a lot of it was about me sitting down and saying, okay, I just really need to learn this quite fast so that I can progress. So it was quite tough four years doing the PhD, but I'm really grateful for having had the opportunity to, to push myself and learn new skills. And nowadays I do a bit less of that sort of research, but it's always good to know that you can do it. And it was quite funny because when I published my first, as a, as a PhD student, I, I published a journal article on the project and it was quite highly technical, you know, all the graphs, the stats, the numbers. And at that time, that journal publisher, now it's a little bit less common, they would give you kind of printout copies. They gave me loads of them. I didn't know what to do with them. So I gave one to my dad and he just opened it and he was like, did you do all this? When did you get interested in all these numbers? <laughs> Which was quite funny. But yeah, it's a nice thing every now and then to push yourself, I guess. If you look back at your younger self, like when you were a child, would you have expected this? No, not, not really. You mean career-wise? Going to tech. You know, I, I, really, I really liked animals and I wanted to go into ecology, so uh, probably not. <laughs> I was always a very environmentally conscious person and, and, and I still am and I still do. On, on my day-to-day -day life, I try to do a lot of things to avoid everything going terribly wrong climate-wise. I was highly interested in ecology and helping helping the planet. And I, I have a, a strong background in dancing as well. So no, I didn't quite quite anticipate this shift into acoustics. And definitely, what's more, when I was an undergraduate in my degree, I had this one module called acoustics, and I really hated it. And when the module finished, I remember telling a friend, oh my God, thank God I don't have to do this again. So it's, it's a little bit ironic, really. Yeah. But who knows, you know. <laughs> so this podcast is about women in tech and radio. So it's about diversity. So yes. can you tell me how diversity has affected you in your professional life? Yeah, it's one of those things that it, it kind of changed throughout kind of my studies and my career. When, when I was an undergraduate student, there were more men in my degree than there were women because it was kind of an art slash humanities and not very tech developed degree where most of our problems are. There were more men, but it wasn't a terrible imbalance. But I, I started noticing it, but didn't really cost me any problems. It was only when I really moved into the technology side of audio engineering that I started noticing quite a strong bias. I think it was when I started being in more public domains of research. So when I started going to conferences and presenting and being at events where I realized it was a really, really big problem. And many times I was treated much, much more harshly than other male presenters at events. And that made me start rethinking what the situation of diversity or lack of diversity was in audio. So before I, I kind of, I knew it existed. I knew it was a thing, but I, it hadn't affected me firsthand. And sometimes one needs to see these things in process to understand how bad they are. And when I started noticing it was a big thing and noticing women were treated more harshly because they were women, 
then I started to take a much more active interest in trying to make the field better. I had kind of always been a bit aware of it when I was a teenager. I was very critical about certain language used to refer to women. So I was very aware in that sense. But as I progressed through my career, I just became much more active in calling behaviour out and trying to support female and non-binary colleagues so that we can all create a better audio environment. But certainly what I noticed is, for example, when I was very, very early in my doctoral studies, I went to my first kind of international conference to present my audio work. And my behavior in that conference and the way I behave now when I go to events is very different because I noticed at that first event that people often misunderstood my friendliness for something else. And because I was in a strongly male-dominated environment, often the only woman in the room, you know, uncomfortable situations would arise. I realized years later that my attitude towards people had changed. If I was at an event where I didn't know anyone and there was no women around, I would just not talk to anyone. And it's kind of a bit sad because from being really sociable, like turned into a person that will go to an event and just stay on their own. It's the same now, really. If I go to a place that is male-dominated and I don't know the people there, I tend to take a not very sociable attitude. And I have kind of, I had a situation a couple of years ago, even that I was at an event that I helped organize and all my male colleagues received business cards from this guy. I was just bypassed as if I wasn't there. I, I suspect the person thought I was someone's wife or something. <laughs> Yeah, it's always tough to have to change your own attitude when actually it's the environment that should change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm now kind of I'm in that situation where generally when I go to events, I know quite a few people. So that allows me to relax and I kind of get my guard a little bit down. I was actually at an audio accessibility event uh, yesterday. And when I arrived there, there was at least five people that I knew. Uh, so the first thing I tend to go is to just go and say hello to those people. And that just makes me feel, okay, you know, I know some people here. I don't have to be constantly worrying about what, um, what attitudes might be. But I have, you know, as an academic, I've often noticed that when I go to events that aren't audio focused, I have fewer problems of feeling that lack of diversity than when I go to audio-only events, which is it is actually really sad, but it sometimes has to do with who's organizing it, you know, what, as you say, what that environment that they try to create is like. You mentioned the conferences you go to, but what about your daily job? Do you have problems with diversity, like in class? I'm very outspoken as to what I think about diversity. So the students, I think most of them would know that I'm quite active in the field of diversity. I often give talks and I have given talks within my university. I am very outspoken on social media when things happen. And I am very clear in my uh, lectures and practicals as to what behavior is expected and what isn't expected. So I think students get that message and it's always really nice when without even knowing it someone comes and thanks you for being the advocate and I think that's really important in an educational sector that students see their lecturers their tutors their mentors as people that are taking a stand for what it's right instead of just accepting things as they are. But I think it's really important to, as an educator, to be aware of dynamics in the classroom. And if anything has happened that is not appropriate or someone has used vocabulary that shouldn't be used, then 
there should be a conversation had about that. And for example, one of the things that I do very early on with new students is I make sure they don't use any gendered language, things like cameraman or sound guy. I just make sure they don't use any of those because that terminology unfortunately does reinforce this idea that those roles are by default associated with men. So when there's written work or kind of practical work, I just make sure that they're aware that that is not correct terminology. I try, I hope I do it very kindly. So it's not about really telling them off and saying, do not use that word. It's just about saying, look, you know, that word, that that terminology you're using is just leaving out a part of the population and it might make your female or non-binary colleagues feel excluded. So I try to have those conversations. And it was quite interesting because I was teaching a class this week, mixing, and I had to teach the use of groups and VCAs. And I really dislike that terminology of master and slaves for VCA faders that control groups of faders. And I really don't want the students to use that terminology. I don't want to use that terminology. So I just had a conversation with the students saying, okay, you know, you're going to find this in the, the manuals. You're going to find this online. But... I wrote down all these alternatives for you to use. And I kind of told them what alternative I preferred. And I said, look, I wrote all this down for you. Just choose what you think helps you understand the process better. But please don't use that terminology. And students tend to be really receptive of those conversations and the fact that you're having an open conversation about why that is problematic. So I do try to use my position to make sure that those not just employees but employers of the future make the environment better for everyone it's great to know that the new generation is coming out with larger knowledge and awareness about these small things i mean terminology may seem like a small thing but it goes a long way absolutely yeah yeah and i think it's one of those things that people think as you say that is harmless but actually it has a really big impact words tell us what we think in a way but because they're so stratified in a way we we just learned to accept it and it's only when we stop and think well why do I use that word that's just an awful word or that's an awful expression and it's nothing technical and it's not even correct it's only when we stop and we analyze what we're doing that that we can really really move forward and and there are people that still think that It's silly. I've had loads of arguments with people that say there's no wrong with sound. Guy is gender neutral, but it really isn't. The word guy isn't gender neutral. And I think it's one of those things that we have to question ourselves constantly. And, you know, we all have biases. And I think the important thing is that we're every now and then we just stop and think, okay, why am I using that word? Is that all right? Or is that excluding someone? And I haven't even thought about it. I think it's just a need for constant self-reflection. Yeah. Do you have any other examples of diversity initiatives that uh, you or colleagues at your university do in order to improve diversity? When organizing events, I do work very hard to try to avoid all male panels. I do feel incredibly strongly about them. I think it's very problematic. It's not just in audio, in any event, when you have a panel of experts, you know, have five, sometimes seven experts on the stage they're all male. And in addition to that, there's probably a lack of diversity in other senses as well. For example, when I was a student, I realized, and it took me years to realize this, I only realized when I had finished all my studies, that I had spent all my studies without attending one event that had a keynote speaker that was female. Never. It wasn't until I had finished all my studies that I went to an event and I said, oh, 
there's a female keynote speaker. And I had never actually seen one before, (laughs) which is really, really strange. And I think kind of giving the sense that everybody that is an expert is male is incredibly dangerous and it's leaving out the views of other people. And sadly, I've seen in a lot of fields that people are generally just inviting their buddies to speak. And I, I've even was at a panel that someone said, oh, yeah, I invited him because, you know, he's a friend of mine. And they had the seven men on stage. And I was thinking, well, you can't just say that you invited someone because it's your friend. And <laughs> it's, it's not it's not OK. And a, a problem with that is that people tend to say that they work on a meritocracy. So people should be there because of their merits. But the reality is that when those things happen, people aren't there because they deserve to be there. They're there because they belong to a group of people that often know each other from going to the same events. They go to the pub afterwards. They like each other. Um, and those wonderful women and non-binary professionals that are experts in the field but don't participate in those male networks are left aside and their voices aren't heard. And new voices bring progress to the audio industry and to any industry. So I feel very, very strongly in making sure there's equal representations because ultimately it does make the field better when we listen to what other people say and we allow other people to challenge the ways we work. And I think diversity is one of those things. And working on accessibility, this becomes really obvious. In accessibility, we often say that if you make a change to benefit a group of people, a minority, generally that change, even if you didn't know it, is going to be beneficial to a greater number of people than you anticipated. And equality is the same. When we give equal rights and representation, regardless of gender, we're not just benefiting or helping the minority group, we're actually creating a better environment for everyone. So that's why I think it's so important. I'm happy you mentioned um, all men panels, because what do you think about all women panels as well? Does it mean that the subject is going to be about diversity? No, I actually, I try to avoid all women panels as well. I, I do really believe in trying to be as balanced as possible. I consider my male colleagues as allies and I've had wonderful male mentors who are incredibly outspoken about equality and very, very supportive. And I think it's important to, instead of dividing people into camps, is showing that actually it's something that a lot of people support regardless of their gender and that we can work together on how to make things better. I don't want to see gender equality as a woman's thing. I don't want people to see it as it's women's problem to solve, it's non-binary people's problems to solve, it's everyone's problems to solve. So when we have all-female panels, sometimes there's a tendency, I think, even if, if that's not the intention, of course, to think, well, this is something that women have to think about or non-binary people have to think about, but men don't have to worry about it. That's not their problem. And we put so much energy in trying to make the industry more equal that sometimes that comes to a sacrifice on our own professional work. For example, when I do panels on equality, I always make sure that everybody has an opportunity to say what they do when they're not fighting for equality. Because I think many people have been so identified with gender equality that sometimes you realize people don't know what it is that they actually do in the audio world. So I think sharing that responsibility on campaigning and making the field better and as a result, a society and the world better is good if it's shared. I, I do believe it is. 
So what would you recommend to any young woman who wants to start in the audio industry? That's a good question. Ooh. I mean, the, the biggest change for me was when I really opened up to non-male networks and made connections. So when I was a student, I didn't have very strong female mentorships and I felt quite lonely. Well, in the last few years, I've met some incredible non-male audio professionals and that has given me a really strong support network. And I think that's a really, really important thing to have years ago, I used to be very skeptical about um, all women networks. And my opinion completely changed when I was invited by Red Bull Studios to host one of the workshops for Normal Novelty. And it was absolutely fantastic. It was just like nothing else I have ever done. And it made me completely rethink what I thought about networks focused on gender. I'm a huge fan of the Yorkshire Sound Women Network in the UK. The main organizer of that is the wonderful Liz Dobson, who has done amazing work for equality. I would encourage any young women starting in audio to, to really look for those networks, meet people, talk to them, share experiences, having not just colleagues, but friends. And I guess the other thing is just not to be afraid to call out what you think is unacceptable, I think. And if someone feels that they're being treated unfairly because of gender, as a student or professional, I would invite them to speak up. And if they feel they can't do it, I would always try to look to have a mentor to help them navigate. So I think it's about connections, about networks, getting a support group and keeping your confidence up. Everybody makes mistakes and that's absolutely fine. Thank you very much for joining today, Mariana. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for the great work you do. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much. And guys, we'll see you next time for the next episode of Women in Tech and Radio.